Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be starting a new series today on faith. And throughout this series, we're going to be learning about selected heroes of the faith that are found in Hebrews 11, as well as throughout biblical history. We're going to end this series on Easter when we discuss the greatest hero who has ever lived according to faith, and his name is Jesus. Pretty good person to study on Easter, right? But we're going to begin this morning by exploring and defining what faith is. We're going to look and explore and define what it looks like, and we're going to look, explore, and define how we live it. And we're going to do that by reading the first few um, verses in the book of Hebrews here. So Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And Father God, as we start this new series, I ask Lord that the message today can help reinforce that central pillar of our, of our faith, which is faith. Faith is a question that that the enemy tried to destroy in the Garden of Eden when he said, did God really say? Because Satan knows that if he destroys faith, he destroys any hope that we have for the kingdom of God and heaven in the future. So I ask, Father, that this message today will help cement this idea of faith within our hearts, that we'll destroy all the false arguments and put in their place the true definition of what it means to have this intangible thing called faith. Lord God, I thank you for this, and I ask this in your name. Amen. Now I'm going to start with a question this morning, and I'm going to ask you, what did you notice about the verses? What was the common denominator that we saw throughout these verses that we just read? And that word is, the word is faith, isn't it? That is the common denominator that we saw. Now I know that our society and the media and everything within this world would try to tell us that people's faith is dead. That people have no faith in anything, and particularly God, that somehow we've evolved as humanity, we've, we've evolved past the need to have faith in some sort of big guy in the sky, or a faith in a particular religion or God. But the reality of it is that no one can live a single day without exercising faith, can we? 
I mean, after all, we have to have faith in the physical world. When you woke up and you went into the bathroom this morning, you flipped a light switch. And you had faith that when you flipped the light switch, a light's going to come on. You had faith that when you got into your car this morning, that when you turned the key, it would start and it would operate and not fall apart on the way driving over here to church. You knew it was going to get you to your destination. You have faith when you mail a letter or you send an email that that correspondence is going to get to the right address because of the systems that are put in place to make sure it gets there. When you go to the pharmacy, you have faith that the pharmacist will give you the right medications. Every time you walk into this building or any building, you have faith that the architect and the workmen did their job right, that we're not going to fall through the floor into the basement right now because we have faith in the building materials, we have faith in the architect, and we have faith that the builders did their job right. And faith in the experience that we've met here hundreds of times and we've never fallen through the floor yet. So despite what a humanist or what anti-God type people would say, faith still exists even if it's just in the physical realm. But the faith we want to talk about today is faith that is expressed in the spiritual realm. Each one of us, regardless of our background, regardless of our education, or regardless of our social status, our talents, or anything else within us, um, can express faith. And the difference between the faith that we exercise in our daily routines, the faith of things that we see in this world, and the faith that is our religious faith, is the object of that faith. Even in the spiritual realm, despite their their, um, the anti-God people, their declarations to the otherwise, everyone places their faith in something. Everyone places their faith in something. A Muslim would put his faith in the Quran and in Muhammad. A humanist would put his faith in himself, his intellects, his education, his money. They always put faith in something. A follower of religion other than Christianity will put faith in his good works or her um, adherence to the, the tenets of that faith. But none of these can save. None of these can save. Because in each case, the object of their faith is wrong. That's why your faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. As we know, the Bible insists that we personally put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because there is salvation, there is not salvation in any other, and there is no other name under heaven given to men, which why we must be saved. This morning we're beginning a study and laying down the foundation of the greatest teaching in the Bible. And that subject is faith. We're going to start this study by looking at what faith is and what faith does. What faith is. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. To understand what faith is, we have to get past certain misconceptions that, that we can have Um, regarding faith and what a lot of other people have about faith. And the first misconception I want to bring up today is that faith is the ability to manipulate God. We see this in the approach of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. This approach sees faith as only having 
one goal or one aim in life, and that is to make our lives more comfortable, to be more blessed, to have more possessions, to live a life of wealth and health and prosperity and all of that kind of thing. And we, by doing so, we reduce God to being just a genie in a lamp, that if we rub him a certain way or we tell him what we need, that he is going to give it to us. Some people would put faith into this bucket. And in doing so, we're trying to tell the all-knowing God what we need. Or tell him that, you know, I really need that BMW, God, because I deserve to live a life of health and wealth and prosperity because I'm one of your children. It's kind of funny that we reduce God to this genie in a lamp and tell the all-knowing God that somehow we know what we need more than he does. That's a danger of, of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. As it focuses so much on this life, a life of ease and blessing, but has nothing to do with the spiritual realm. The second misconception is that faith is, in, is an adherence to a set of beliefs. In other words, it's a religious thing. In other words, you have to believe in a right doctrine, or you have to believe in the right formula to please God. But Paul told Timothy in his letter to him, I know whom I have believed, not what I have believed. Paul always pointed his faith not to what he believed, but to who he believed. He always pointed his faith back to Jesus Christ and not just to some esoteric learning that you have to, to learn in order for us to be saved. If your beliefs are not founded in the right person, it really doesn't matter what else you believe. You can get an A on a theology test and still go to hell if you don't actually have faith in what you believe and the person that that belief is pointing to. The third misconception is that faith is a blind leap into the dark. To, to many believers, or I'm sorry, to many unbelievers, faith is the antithesis of science. To these people saying you just have to have faith, like the video showed us a minute ago, is the same thing as saying you have to act contrary to everything you know and trust and just believe that things are going to work out for the best. But faith isn't like that at all. Again, we're looking to whom we believe, not what we believe. And final misconception is that faith is somehow simply a devotion to whatever God one happens to follow. A person who would use this argument says, he is a person of deep faith. Now it doesn't matter what that person has faith in. They just say, well, he has deep faith in something. Maybe it's, it's Islam. He has a deep faith in Islam. Maybe it's in himself or herself because they're a humanist and they believe in themselves. Maybe it's even Satanism. And... What matters, and the person who uses this argument says, what matters is that they are sincere. Have you ever heard that before? Well, as long as you are sincere in your faith, all roads are going to lead to God. That's, that's you know, I've had people tell me that. My father, who is not a man of faith, actually asked me this question after the September 11th bombings. When he was struggling with the attacks and trying to make sense in his own mind why this happened, because he has the belief that all religions lead to heaven. And he said, after all, all you need to do is believe in God and you're fine. I said, well, Dad, Satan believes in God. If you think about it, but he is not going to go to heaven. His, his simple 
knowledge of God does not save him because he has no faith in God. You see, Satan was created by God. Satan exists in the presence of God. Satan most likely witnessed much of creation, including the creation of man. It says in Ezekiel that he was anointed as a guardian cherub over Eden. So he witnessed a lot of this. But Satan, as much as he might believe himself to be God, as much faith as he expresses in himself, as much worship as he tries to draw to himself, he will never see the glory of the kingdom of God that will exist into eternity until that kingdom of God grabs him by the neck and casts him into the lake of fire. That's the closest he's ever going to get to it because he doesn't believe in the person and whom that faith points us to. You see, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. And if you have a God, and this is what I told my dad, I said, if you have a God that is small enough for your brain, small enough for you to comprehend, to fit inside your mind and make sense to you and, and, and agree with all your feelings about it, then that God you believe in is not big enough to save you. Because it's a God that you have created within your own mind. Fortunately, the God we worship has given us the Bible to show us the kind of faith or how we can have the kind of faith that pleases him. And Hebrews chapter 11 portrays what that real biblical faith looks like. When it says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen is not made out of what was visible. Now true faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances or consequences. And we see in the scripture we just read that faith is described in a twofold way. First, the word that is confident that is translated confidence in the NIV that I read or substance in the King James version that some of you have is the Greek word hypostasis, which means literally to stand under or to support. What that tells us is is that faith is a foundation that gives the believer confidence to stand. This is illustrated in the life of the missionary Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China. And when he first went to China, he had to go there on a ship. It was in the 1800s. He's in a sailing vessel, and they came across um, some islands right in front of China. And these islands had um, a tri tribes on them that believed in cannibalism. So they didn't want to get anywhere near these islands, but as they were approaching China, all of a sudden the wind just died out of their sails. They had no way to steer the ship, and they were getting caught in the currents, and these currents are pushing them toward the shore of these islands. And standing on the shore of these islands were these natives going, come on in, <laughs> we're hungry. And so the, you know, the crew starts to panic, the captain starts to panic, and they go to Hudson Taylor and says, you know, if you're a man of God, you need to really pray for us because I, I, we don't want to get anywhere near these guys. I mean, we, we don't know what to do because we're about to drift into this island. There's nothing we can do about it. And Hudson Taylor told him, well, I will pray under one condition. And the captain said, okay, name your condition. You need to raise the sails. Captain looked at Hudson Taylor and said, are you crazy? If I raise the sails right now, my crew's going to think I'm nuts. 
And you don't understand discipline at sea. They have to have utter faith in the captain because otherwise they're going to mutiny. They're going to throw me overboard to these, to these natives over there if, if they think I'm crazy. So, they, so Hudson Taylor said, well, I'm not going to pray until you raise the sails. So the captain's looking and they're getting closer and closer to this island. And finally he, he told his crew, raise the sails. Hudson Taylor began to engage himself in prayer. He went down into his cabin and he started earnestly praying to God. And about a half hour later, he hears on his door, and he said, yes. And the captain said, are you still praying for wind? Hudson Taylor said, yes, I am praying for wind. He goes, can you stop? There is so much wind out here that it's ready to rip the sails off the boat. That is showing confidence in the power, love, and the grace of God. Second is the word describing what faith is. That is the translated assurance in the NIV or evidence in the King James Version. And it means conviction. This inward conviction enables the believer to believe things that are not yet seen. That God will perform as he has promised. Continuing with another nautical theme, there's a story told by a ship's captain who has taken George Mueller to a meeting in Quebec, Canada. If you don't know who George Mueller is, he's a man that built dozens of Christian homes, orphanages, and hospitals for children in Bristol, England. He did none of this through fundraising. He didn't go from church to church and say, I need money for this. He simply prayed and people would suddenly show up at his church with thousands and thousands of dollars to fund his, his, his work for the children of Great Britain. During his lifetime, he received over a million pounds from the Lord without any type of fundraising, any type of advertising. He simply prayed and God provided. And through him, hundreds and hundreds of orphans were saved. Well, the captain tells this story of when he was transporting George Mueller to, uh, to Quebec, Canada for a church meeting. The captain said he had been on the bridge for 24 hours fighting really horrible weather in the Great Lakes. George Mueller came to him and said, Captain, how far are we from port? He goes, I have to be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon for this church meeting. And the captain said, look out the window. We're closed in a fog bank. I can't see five feet in front of the ship. I really have no idea where I'm at because I can't take my sextant and see where I am. I could be, I could be in Australia right now and I, could, I would barely know it. I know I'm on a great lake somewhere, but I have no idea where I am or how I'm going to get where I'm going. The, there's so much bad weather out there. There is absolutely no way that I can guarantee you you're going to be at this church on Saturday. George Mueller replied, very well. If your ship cannot take me, God's going to have to find some other way because I, by the grace of God, has never broken an engagement in 57 years. So let's go down into the chart room of this ship and pray and see what God's going to do. And the captain thought, this guy's crazy. Doesn't he see this weather? Doesn't he see this fog? And he said, you know, look, pastor, Look at this. Do you see how dense this fog is? There is no possible way that this fog is going to be able to disappear in time for me to get you to Quebec, uh, um, Canada, in the time that we have left. 
George Mueller replied, you know, my eye is not on the density of the fog. My eye is on the living God who controls every circumstance in my life. George Mueller then went to the chart room and knelt down and prayed one of the simplest prayers. And when he had finished, the captain felt, well, since he prayed, I guess I have to pray. But George Mueller stopped him saying, as you do not believe, he will answer. And as I believe he has, there's no need whatever for you to pray about it. George Mueller then said, Captain, I have known the Lord for 57 years. And he has never, ever, there has never been a single day when I have failed to get an audience with my king. Never. Get up, Captain, and open the door. And the captain did. He opened the door to the chart room, and it was a clear sky. Fair weather and no waves. George Mueller kept that promised engagement. My friends, that is the conviction that only faith can bring. That's what faith is. Let's look at what faith does. Faith caused Abel to worship God. By faith... Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When the Lord spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. We do not know the details of Abel's faith. We don't know how much had been revealed to him, being one of the first men on earth, of how he was to worship. But we know that he did worship. He followed his father Adam and walked with God and that faith caused him to worship God and want to worship God. In the King James Version, this verse tells us that Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. I like the way that, that phrase is there in the King James. He chose the choicest lamb as the offering and he brought it to the place of sacrifice. You know, as I read this, it just wells up in my spirit that, you know, I, I, I don't want to cast a judgment, but I find it extremely hard that a person whose faith never compels them to come to the Lord's house and worship is truly saved. The people that you have to drag out of bed and get them to come to church twice a year, I have to question their salvation. Because I don't know if they're not truly saved or if they're just in a backslidden condition. Because true faith always looks for an opportunity to worship. Another example in the Bible that we see here in this scripture in Hebrews is that faith caused Enoch to walk with God. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Enoch is a fascinating biblical character. Enoch lived during one of the darkest periods in the history of the world right before God destroys the world with a flood. Yet Enoch managed to keep himself pure. Enoch walked with God. Yet the Genesis record seems to indicate this wasn't always the case in his life. 
Some theologian believes that within the, the language structure of the Hebrew, of the account of his life in Genesis, that it indicates that during the first 65 years of his life, that Enoch did not walk with God, that he was a man of his world, that he was guilty as the same immorality that was about to bring the flood upon the world when his son died. But from the birth of his son Methuselah and through the remaining 300 years of his life, he walked with God. The Hebrew form of the verb means that he walked closely and continually with God. The walk that Enoch experiences wasn't just one that, that he was just lukewarm and following him, but it, the, the language in the, the Hebrew says that it was a, one of deepening intimacy with God. He lived every day in the presence of the Lord and in constant communion with him. His faith, his obedience, as well as his worship were outstanding. And look at what the Bible says about it. The hallmark of Enoch's life was that he pleased God. Wow! Isn't that an amazing description of somebody's life? Isn't that the kind of description that we want over our life? Can that be said of how we are living our lives in the same kind of time, a time marked with gross rebellion and immorality against God? His faith was so strong that it delivered him from the consequence of death. Enoch was the first example that we see in the Bible of the reality of the rapture. And if the Lord's trumpet were to sound right now, would your faith take you to heaven? These verses do not say that faith is simply one way to please God. It is the only way to please God. It is the only currency of, that heaven accepts. And finally, faith caused Noah to work for God. By faith, Noah warned about things not yet seen, and holy fear built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. The story of Noah's generation is a story of mankind falling into a completely degenerate state. And the Bible records in Genesis 6 that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil all the time. It also says that the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. But this is also a story of the marvelous grace of God. Noah stood alone, alone before the entire world. Jesus even used the days of Noah as a representation of the condition of the world that's going to be right before his own second coming and indicated that his followers should be prepared to face that same kind of scorn, that same kind of hostility, that same kind of persecution that Noah went through. Day after day. I mean, Noah could not be a secret believer in God. You know, most of us are going to be watching the Super Bowl later today. And think about this for a moment. The ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That means 
that the field we're going to be watching, that this ark was one and a half times the length of that field and more than four stories high. If it existed here in Whitehall, it would be the biggest structure in town. By far. Noah was to show faith and obedience to God. If he was going to do this, he could not hide it from the world. Can you imagine 120 years of mockery that he would have to face on a daily basis when he built this gigantic ship? And not only did he build this gigantic ship, he built this gigantic ship hundreds of miles away from the nearest ocean. And this thing was too big to move. There is no way even today we would be able to move that thing in one piece. Can you imagine the people who would look at this every day and just shout as they walked past them, all the jeers, the insults, and all the scorn that he had to face? But Noah built the ark because he believed God. He believed God. Every time he chopped into a tree and felled a tree, it shouted, Faith! Every time he sawed, it shouted faith. Every swing of the hammer shouted faith. Every time he put pitch on a seam of this ark, it shouted faith. And does your life reflect your faith? Does your works reflect your faith? Because faith is going to make us work for God. Because only his steadfast belief in God kept Noah faithful through those 120 years of being obedient to the voice of God and building that ark. The majority of the people simply refused to, come to believe in Noah's witness concerning that coming flood. But yet in faith, he went right on working. He went right on witnessing, building the ark, warning those of the coming judgment. It says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And then as a final act of faith, he and his family stepped into the ark before a single raindrop fall fell and God closed the door. Noah was a man of faith and his life continually showed that kind of faith. Does yours? Noah, like Enoch, lived a life of faith before God and he was saved from that coming flood. I'm going to conclude with this illustration. And I came up with this illustration looking back through some pictures of when I was younger. And I grew up partially in Hayward, and in Hayward there's a swimming area on Lake Nabokagan. It's a kind of a horseshoe-shaped pier that people would jump off of into the lake that was formed by the Nabokagan being dammed up just right downstream there. And... The picture is me and my dad jumping off a pier holding hands. I was probably about five years old. And we were jumping off the pier into the deep end. And one of those times jumping, I remember losing my grip on my dad's hand. And I immediately sunk to the bottom. I'm five years old. I barely know how to swim. And in a panic, I just remember reaching around, trying to find my dad. You know, this, is, this isn't a lake, this is a river, so it's pretty kicked up and, and everything. So you can't see really well in there. And I'm, I'm reaching around, and I'm looking for my dad, and I'm panicked because I can't find my dad. And, fi and then suddenly I just feel hands grab me by the chest that lift me right back up out of the water. And my dad is just standing there, holding me up out of the water in the quote-unquote deep end, and it's only about up to his chest. So he's standing there calm, confident, because he, the water doesn't mean anything to him. 
He put me back in the water and told me to swim to the ladder. And as I swam, he followed me to make sure I'd make it. You know, at various points in our life, we all feel like we've lost our grip on God or that God has somehow turned his back on us and let us go. And our temptation is to panic. Our temptation is to doubt. Our temptation is to throw faith out the window. Yet God is right there with us. God is walking with us. Even if it seems like the water is coming over our heads, that water is not deep to him at all. Tammy, if you can come back up with Jennifer. And that's the truth of all the situations that we read about this morning. That God is always right there. Because church family, all through our lives, ultimately we have always been held up by the grace of God. We can celebrate this morning forever that God is never out of his depth. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid of going deeper with God. You don't have to be afraid with going into deeper relationship or sacrificing more, more time, more energy, more money, whatever that sacrifice may be. Because the same God that saw Enoch through, the same God that saw Abel worship him, the same God is going to carry you through everything. And that it's that faith that will give you the confidence and conviction to worship God faithfully as Abel had, to walk with God as faithfully as Enoch, and to work for God as faithfully as Noah. So let's stand and enter back into a time of worship this morning.